0: Hi everybody and welcome back to Defining Your Success, I'm your host Din. Now before I introduce my guest today, I just wanted to talk about the term active listening and listening to understand. So one question I wanted to ask you was, how often do you feel that you're not listened to in a conversation? On a personal level, I grew up in a family of six people, five of which I would describe as being extroverts including myself. I was the youngest person in the house and I had two other siblings. As you can imagine, at times, I very much felt like I was not listened to. What would this mean? In many cases, it would mean that I would have to try to speak over people just to try to get my point across. This would often lead to many arguments. Uh, However, growing up, it was not something I thought much of. And it's probably something as a habit that I did in both school, college, university and working as a doctor as well. However, over the last year, I met my guest today and was introduced to the term active listening and listening to understand. So what does this actually mean? Now, I want you to imagine yourself in a conversation with somebody. And I think naturally we've all been in a situation on both sides of this where we are speaking to somebody and they will interfere or interject halfway through the conversation to put a point across, uh, depending on what you've said or something they may have thought of. However, imagine how you would feel when you are speaking and the other person stays silent and lets you speak to the end of your thoughts. For myself, I think that would make me feel valued uh, from that person because they are actually listening to what I am saying. And if that person reflected on and appreciated what I was actually saying to them, I think that would improve my relationship with them and probably improve the quality of the conversation going forward. However, I think this isn't a skill that comes naturally to any of us, and it actually takes effort at times just to fully listen to that person without interjecting, especially if you may not agree with everything that they are saying, which, in a healthcare setting, in a stressful setting at work, whichever your profession is, it can actually be quite difficult to do. However, we can teach ourselves to be active listeners, And this is a skill set you often see in coaching and even counselling. So, moving on to my guest today, and I'm really excited to introduce you to Dr. Susie Sterling. Susie is trained in public health and was previously the Regional Migrant Health Lead for the Yorkshire and Humber Strategic Health Authority. She was also the Training Programme Director for Public Health between 2010 and 2019. Susie is now one of the Yorkshire and Humber Associate Deans and in this role she has oversight over the Future Leaders Programme. She's been involved with the Future Leaders Programme for many years, and with the help and support of the Dean of Yorkshire and Humber, Dr John Cooper, and Deputy Dean Dr Fiona Bishop, has been responsible for its transition from a medical learning opportunity to one that is now multidisciplinary. The Future Leaders Programme really is unique in its multidisciplinary nature, and it provides an opportunity for personal development through some excellent professional courses, it also gives you a chance to do a PG Certificate in Leadership and Management and also project work in subjects such as Compassionate Leadership, Ethnic Diversity and Inclusion, Health inequalities, Sustainability in Healthcare, alongside many others. Over the last 10 years, the Future Leaders Program has developed many excellent leaders throughout the Yorkshire number who are now in senior management positions. If that's not enough, Susie is also a professional coach and was instrumental in the setup of the Yorkshire & Humber coaching scheme. This is unique in itself and it provides 6 free sessions of coaching for medical and dental trainees in the Yorkshire & Humber region. Over the last year I've been able to receive my coaching sessions on this scheme and it's been instrumental in me deciding my career path and what matters to me both professionally and personally. Thanks a lot for joining me today Susie, it's great to have you here.
1: Thank you, Werkes, and thanks for that introduction.
0: So just to start with, really, it'd be great to learn a little bit more about yourself. Just listening to you, it'd be impossible to tell this, but you're originally from Scotland, is that correct?
1: That is correct, yes. Mysteriously. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and how was it growing up in Scotland?
1: Oh, it's wonderful, yeah. I had the fortune of growing up in Edinburgh, which is a beautiful city. I don't know if you've ever visited it, but it has has it all, has has sea, has mountains, has culture, has wonderful things. Uh, Yeah, really enjoyed that, but also then really, really enjoyed moving down to Sheffield, which is where I came to medical school. And apart from some departures overseas, which we might talk about during the course of this conversation, this has been my home pretty much since then.
0: And how was medical school?
1: Medical school was... Great. I mean, mixed, as I'm sure you will remember. Um, lots of uh interesting learning, but also some pretty, I would say, uh, challenging teaching styles. I think I'd like to think education and healthcare has moved on quite a lot since then. So, it was commonplace to, um, teach by humiliation, and uh, there was the odd kind of experience of shaming that was kind of routine um so i i think that uh whilst it was a positive experience it was positive because of the people that i was with rather than the people who were doing much of the teaching
0: and with the future leaders program where uh, we are aware that it has a big emphasis on communication styles and how we actually do interact with each mm. other as people and leaders At the time when you were at medical school, were you aware that this just doesn't quite feel right? Mm.
1: Yes, I think I was. I think that was probably the beginning for me of thinking there are different ways of doing this. How can we turn this around? Um, on, On many levels, both patient interactions, but also team interactions. And, you know, as you'll know, healthcare is not really a solo endeavor, you know, this is team interactions and collaboration are really, really essential. So getting that right is really key. Um, And I think I became interested in how we could do better, uh, and interested both on a sort of team and um, team communication level, but also on an educational level, like how can we help our learners do better. And. I feel very strongly that education is connected to patient care, so in other words, if we, do, if we do well with our education we're going to be delivering great patient care, Converse is obviously true, but to put effort and, and, um, and focus on the quality and nature of education and communication means that patients will, will have m- more positive experiences and hopefully outcomes.
0: Yeah, and I think more and more we are seeing how important that actually is to patient outcomes and the emphasis that we are actually putting on this now actively is very important to all of us to be the best possible professionals that we can in uh, settings in in the NHS. With yourself, how was it starting off as a doctor then? Uh, Was that in Sheffield as well?
1: That was. I did um, what was called a house job (laughs) back in the day house jobs in Sheffield and in Doncaster and uh I did really enjoy them actually there was a real sense of camaraderie I mean they're incredibly hard work as I'm sure you know uh and you know early years in in healthcare just just are for everybody um but I did very much enjoy the challenge the responsibility the communication and being part of a team which was a big part of things then I, I think that we perhaps are missing some of that in this current structure we've got but I count myself as fortunate to have had that experience then yeah
0: and was public health an interest to you at that point
1: um no I don't think I had a clue about public health <laughs> either at medical school or in my early clinical years I went away um to work in South Africa in the early part of my career I think we might come on to that a bit later but um that was what switched me on to public health uh, for a variety of reasons, and um, it just all made perfect sense. It fell into place actually when I was there, um, which was ninety four to ninety six. I th- I went out thinking that I'd stay for a year and do something a little bit different to work um, in a as a generalist in a rural hospital, and I and I really enjoyed it. So I ended up staying much longer. But unfortunately, at that time, um, HIV was really kicking off so for a variety of sort of socio-economic reasons where I was working became an epicenter of the HIV epidemic and so in the course of those two years we went from seeing um, what I would call you know normal medical patients so on the female ward older women with rheumatic heart disease for instance and heart failure to in the space of two years it being a palliative care ward for women younger than me. So um, obviously it wasn't just women patients, it was across the board, uh, which also meant that we lost uh, many members of the staff uh, in that small rural hospital. So we lost our lab staff, we lost senior and junior nursing staff, the hospital social worker. This was a time, of course, when we had nothing to offer people um, in terms of treatment options. So it became really apparent, I suppose, that, you know, you can do what you like in a hospital, but unless you get things right in the community outside, you're just gonna the tap will keep on running. You know, so I became interested in what were the policies, systems, structures that could stop people from getting unwell in the first place. Um, and as you'll know, you know, we talk about a healthcare system or a health system, but it's not really a health system; it's a sickness system. You know, it's there to attend to people when they're ill and uh, we really need to focus our efforts much more on stopping them from getting unwell in the first place. And that's where public health comes in. So that was my kind of awakening, if you like, um, to public health being foundational to to health and well-being. And I hadn't really, to my shame (laughs) and naivety, hadn't really considered it uh, prior to that. As a, as a career option. But I became just, yeah, interested in where we could go and or, with it as a, as a discipline, where I could go with it as a discipline, but also in a sense, other things seem futile. If you don't have that kind of foundational piece in place uh, as part of a health and social care system, how can you continue to do the same things in the hospital day on day. So for instance, it was very common to see children who would come in uh, starving. I mean, their lives were in danger because they simply did not have enough to eat. And they didn't have enough to eat because their parents earned 15 cents a day picking pineapples in a very wealthy person's farm next door. Um, So unless those kind of foundational sort of socioeconomic structural things are in place, you're on a hiding to nothing in a healthcare setting. And the same could be tr- true said to be true about immunisation programmes or antenatal care. You know, those were um, in place but patchy and sometimes rudimentary. So we would see the effects of that. We would see avoidable ill health uh, and avoidable materna- maternal deaths and, and child deaths because there wasn't sufficient focus on those um, programs being robust enough. So I guess I began to think, well, that's where the, that's where the focus should be. That's where I need to go next. Um, and that's what brought me back to uh,
0: public health training. I mean, with our teaching with yourselves, we've talked about something called the Kinefin model as well, where you have your simple questions to answer. And it seems you know, with a lot of these things that you're describing with the primary pre- prevention side of things, that, they are, that, 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 that there is simple things that we can do that can actually improve people's outcomes and people's lives as well. And I know there's a, there, there is a bigger picture out there as well and with the public health side of things, obviously you will be trying to address these um, as well but even at a junior level even at our level as well for a lot of the fellows there are a lot of things that we can do now that can actually make a difference to people as well.
1: Mm, Absolutely yeah I think um, well that's one of the things you're discovering in leadership in your (laughs) fellowship isn't it that there are things that you can do and not to be overwhelmed by the scale or the enormity of the challenges that lie ahead of us and I think you know it would be Kidding ourselves if we thought there weren't significant challenges in the health and social care sector, some of which need joined-up thinking from a public health perspective. They need really, really complex solutions. They need radical, probably radical ideas, doing new things uh, in different ways. But some of things, some things are much more straightforward, and we need to apply the principles we already know around, you know, QI or um, pathway redesign or um, modelling to implement positive change and i think well you'll have to tell me but i think that's one of the things that the the leadership fellowship offers is a place to begin to explore that and see what part an individual can play in a a complex system of players where everybody everybody needs to step up really
0: it has and it's given us that opportunity to think that with these problems there are solutions that we can put in place that can not necessarily make things perfect but make things better and it's something I think a lot of us do actually strive towards doing Mm. over the year. I just wanted to just go back to South Africa. How far into your medical training were you when you went out to South Um,
1: Africa? I was quite early on so I'd done my house jobs here and then I did some SHO jobs, senior house officer jobs as they were called then and really I didn't know what to do in my career i was one of those people who wasn't quite sure i was really jealous of friends who absolutely knew what they wanted to do um and you know picked their specialty and went for it because that just didn't seem like it it was gonna be a thing for me so during my medical school um training i'd done an elective in zimbabwe and another one in ghana we had two electives at that time in sheffield and uh, I just absolutely loved working in those environments. The it, it, yeah, there was something about the kind of um, the team working and the yeah, the 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 mix, I suppose, of sort of primary care and secondary care all together. Being a a kind of generalist seemed to appeal to me. Um, so. It was because of those positive experience I, experiences I was looking at where I could work overseas and found a, an advert in the back of the PMJ which is what happened those days and uh and yeah just phoned up the hospital and had a had an interview on the phone and then went.
0: Oh, it's amazing to hear that and you know it's one of those things we can all consider to do you don't have to follow that set pathway and there's many ways to achieve the things you do actually want to do and develop yourself as well
1: i would really encourage people actually to think in terms of um what's the word squiggly pathways or something i think (laughs) somebody calls it on their podcast don't they and that you know a non-linear career path is okay uh, and in fact might be right for lots of people. I think this idea that people kind of magically know what they want to do, is only available to some, it's not available to everybody. And the other thing that is a bit toxic in career coaching, I think, is this idea of passion, that you should have a passion. If you don't have a passion, there's something lacking. I think mostly that's not how people's lives turn out. They might be passionate about something; things, great, but it doesn't always join up with job availability and what works with your family and other constraints. So, I think much more appropriate is to try something. How does it feel? If it feels good, carry on doing it. If it doesn't, move to something else. And there be flexibility around that. And I think one of the things we need to think carefully about in our current healthcare supply crisis for staff is how we make modifications to the pathways we've got so that it's more welcoming to people who want to take an alternative route or a squiggly route and it's not as linear. I mean, linear is good for some people, but it's not good for everybody.
0: And we we will touch more on um, Create Pathways as well in regards to the Future Leaders Programme. With yourself, we have previously talked about positive impacts on yourself, and you've stated to me before that when it comes to going to South Africa, this had a massive positive Mm. impact on you. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about this?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, on many levels, this was a positive experience. Apart from, you know, it's a beautiful country. <laughs> I had the opportunity to travel and see it. Uh, I got to work with some extraordinary people. It was a very close-knit team. I think I learned a lot about team working in adverse circumstances. I learned a lot about poverty and the impact of poverty on ill health, and, um, And I learnt a lot about inequalities, and it's hard to ignore inequalities in South Africa. I'm sure for obvious sort of historical and, well, probably current, actually, political reasons. Um, You know, for instance, the hospital where I worked was right beside the boundary of a very well-known game park. So we had to drive through the game park to get to the shops. And... If you go to that game park, which, you know, it's on everybody's list in South Africa because it's it's famous for preservation of the white rhino. It's a beautiful, beautiful place to visit and you can travel through it on a lovely tarmac road and there are amazing views and places to stop and you can travel really safely despite the fact that there's, you know, rolling countryside and some pretty steep gradients at times. If you live in that local community, this is a poor rural farming community, you have to travel on a road which has got really um, sizable potholes. I mean, it's significantly dangerous, this road, and it's the scene of quite a lot of accidents. I was in an accident on that road during my time there. Um, So right there, we've got, we've got a depiction, haven't we, of how we place value. We place more value on a a visiting tourist coming to see animal life than we place on people who live and work there for the whole of their life. And that sort of apportioning of resources and saying one is better or more deserving of resource and upgrade than another is, is problematic. So that's played out in lots of different ways, I mean clinically for instance we would see lots of um, kids with snake bites, people often don't have shoes, snakes are in the long grass, and snake bites can be um, can be insignificant, can be fatal. So we could order a helicopter to take someone down to a state-of-the-art ICU in Durban, and that, um, that is a wonderful thing, that's great that that healthcare resource is available. but. Bear in mind that in the same ward on our in our hospital, there were children who didn't have enough to eat and were gonna go home to a home which where there wasn't adequate food and they may be at risk of dying of malnutrition, dying of starvation. So this kind of disconnect with um, state-of-the-art, um, expensive, readily available healthcare, but yet a lack of infrastructure and support for people's basic needs, including, um, food <laughs> um, is really striking and it's hard to ignore there and I think that I mean although that sounds like a negative story I'm, I'm painting a negative story the positive impact is the the opportunity to take away from that the learning and the understanding of inequalities and the wider determinants of health and the sort of importance of that in terms of public health and uh, setting up health systems that can be sustainable, meaningful and and deliver impact. So I I just found it such a stimulating place to work. It was also really stimulating from a communication skills point of view, I realise in retrospect, you know, it's really interesting going to a place where you can't speak the language and learning how to communicate with people and understanding that you can build meaning and rapport into a relationship, even if you don't share the language. Obviously you need language sharing to share information, that's separate. But in terms of connecting with people, I think I did learn something there, which um, which was important, and that that is another part of the kind of the positive story that I was going to come on to uh, <laughs> later in your questions. I mean, why not now? I'll go there now. Okay. <laughs> um, so the other thing that came to mind with your questions about positive impact. Um, is sort of getting on board with, with coaching and meeting um, someone called Sophie Stevenson, who's a Time to Think coach. So in other words, one of Nancy Nancy Klein's um, collegiate. So Sophie is a trainer in this part of the world. And I was fortunate to bump into her at a conference at a time when I'd already trained as a coach and I understood that there was a need for coaching in medical education. That was clear to me. Um, and, being able to train uh, as a time to think coach and read nancy's work and you know join her collegiate has been a really important part i would say of my own professional development where it's foundational i suppose to all the things that i think are important in leadership compassionate leadership kindness in healthcare, the things that we talk about on the flp um understanding about what it what it's like to feel heard, to be heard, and listening to understand rather than listening to reply. The importance of non-interruption. What does really genuine communication look and feel like? How can we create the conditions for that communication to occur? And these are often things which are seen as kind of nice to have luxuries that are you know take a lot of time to embed and I would challenge that and think that their efficiencies really I mean if we can embed quality communication we usually get to wherever we need to whether it's a new idea or it's um, changing skeptics minds or it's bringing people with you or it's embedding something that can move forward and solve a problem. That those are priceless. Those are really, really important skills that we need uh, in amongst our leaders. And so anything that helps us do that is a good thing. And I think this form of communication and the writing that Nancy's done has been really important to me in kind of opening my eyes uh, in terms of the way the way that we should teach communication and the way that we should help people understand what kind of leaders we need in
0: healthcare. Um, Yeah, so that's a very long answer, isn't it? (laughs) No, it's a great answer. And we obviously know you're doing a lot of work now in leadership and developing leaders like ourselves, hopefully, for the future. How did um, it lead on to this from your public health training? Um, So that's an interesting question. I... So I was
1: really interested in in public health, loved my training, was fortunate to work with some amazing people, uh, had a first job, which was fascinating, looking at migrants and health, refugees, asylum seekers and health and healthcare needs. Um, However, during my training, I had had three maternity leaves for my three wonderful children and just oddly, quirk of fate, on return each time from my maternity leave there had been in the intervening period a reorganization of healthcare <laughs> uh, and so i came back three times to new organizations which were struggling to you know establish themselves or create identity and it was hard to see who to go to to get work done and who was still there we lost, lost lots lost lot of organizational memory um so there was just There was a lot of chaos and it felt very painful to repeat that. It's painful to go through that once, but as you will know now (laughs) uh, there's always change in healthcare and it gets pretty tiring and we also lose a lot along the way. We lose morale, we lose energy, we lose knowledge and information, we lose structures that are known to work. And so um, I became interested in organisational development really. Why do we do this to people? And what is the effect on staff and how can we possibly have a functioning healthcare system if we're going to keep messing with it so what are the ways we can become flexible and agile toward that and skill people up so they can cope with change adequately and you know as leaders what do we want to take about change and carry it forward and what do we want to leave and say no we're not going to do that we're not going to keep doing that So I switched on to kind of organizational development as a field, I suppose. I hadn't really considered it before, but just this idea that, you know, looking after staff and understanding how we attend to our staff is really important. And interestingly, there's a link, I suppose, going back to South Africa, because if you think about the HIV epidemic and what was happening, our staff were being decimated as well. So there was a question there about how do we care for the carers? You know, How do we continue to staff and resource a healthcare facility in a place which doesn't have the answers to its own health problems, which was what was going on there with HIV? Um, and how can we stay resilient and look after each other? And I guess those are the questions that are pertinent now, aren't they? How can we stay resilient and look after each other when there don't seem to be enough of us in the NHS and we haven't got enough resource? and People are precious and they, f- they are feeling undervalued and exhausted. So I think there's some really interesting questions there about how we keep going and how we move forward. And those are the things I suppose that interest me now. And that's where perhaps coaching, action learning and those forms of um, thinking support come in.
0: So it sounds like you <laughs> you had worked out exactly you know what you did actually want to do and the, with the organisational development side and you know d- developing the leaders of the future and it sounds like such a great idea anybody listening can clearly hear it it's it's common sense it's the it's the right thing to do but did you face any barriers in actually setting up the future leaders program?
1: Yeah, I I mean if if I've given the impression that that was all well thought through. I've given the wrong impression, so I apologise for that whack because I would, I am one of those people with a non-linear career. I mean, it's only in retrospect that things seem clear and you can join the dots and think, oh yeah, that's why I was interested in that. At the time, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I felt like I really... I've, public health was a real passion, but I never really felt that I'd found my niche in it, that I knew with clarity, what I was going to do, because the public health that I had seen in South Africa was not the public health that I was kind of was available to me in terms of activity or structure um, in this country. And as you will probably know, it's really at the mercy of political change as well, which we've had plenty of, haven't we? So, um, yeah, I didn't actually know what I wanted to do. I just did that colder, warmer. Thing that we've talked about before in terms of hide and seek <laughs> you know does, does what you're doing at work feel like it's a reflection of you and your values does it feel like it's a good fit if it's yes keep doing it and add on more of something along those lines if it doesn't change and do something else and um, my response in terms of moving to organisational development was very much a towards something else that was interesting to me um, I don't know if you've come across this before in terms of careers, but this idea of towards or away from. Sometimes what happens is people get so fed up with their job, they want to move away from it, which is an absolutely natural response. It's not, however, a long term sustainable plan, because very soon whatever you've moved away from diminishes its power and attention on you. And so you need to find something else that you're interested in and move towards it. So I did find a towards, and that was coaching. And then I happily was gifted the leadership uh, scheme as an activity, as an associate dean. Um, So that was a good fit for me. And I'm realising as I'm talking that I haven't answered your question, which is (laughs) barriers to setting up the scheme. So we were fortunate here, I think, in Yorkshire and the Humber, in having a huge amount of support from senior figures. And they really saw the potential of investing in leaders and leadership skills and training. So in that sense, I couldn't have been more fortunate in that there was budget associated. Um, Along the way, the scheme has morphed from something that was only available to doctors to now being as you know a multidisciplinary scheme and I would say that's one of the strengths of it you know that's time and again what fellows report that they derive immense value in diversity of um, colleague experience and that wasn't always uh, the vision you know initially this was very much born out of postgraduate medical and dental education that's where the budget came from so therefore it was for doctors and dentists not for anyone else Um, so I think it's great that that has that perspective has shifted and that we are now a place where we can all see the value of it being multidisciplinary Um, other barriers have been around you know administrative staff and support I think if you're going to chuck money into something like leadership you should only ever do it if you have enough infrastructure behind you otherwise the things that can go wrong are you know people come and do a fellowship but they don't get paid so they can't pay their salary i mean that sort of functional stuff that's really important and um, can be a deal breaker in terms of quality of experience but isn't necessarily front and center of what you think about when you're setting up a scheme. So um, it, was, it, it was hard, it was hard one actually getting the, the right yeah. <laughs> administrative support and we have got as you know fantastic administrative support now and that's key to the success of the scheme I think.
0: I think from my perspective the admin support that we do actually get is second to none, They're very supportive as well and it's something I've probably not been used to in my job <laughs> up to now so it is actually quite nice to see. And I think, again, from the side of the fellows, one of the big selling points is the fact that it is allied health health professionals from all backgrounds, and you can learn so much from people, from you know, these different backgrounds, these different professions as well. And it definitely is one of the big selling points when you actually do speak to the fellows. C- coming to the Future Leaders Programme itself, do you want to tell us a little bit more about it?
1: Absolutely, yes. So this is a programme that's been running... St- for um over how long has it been running i can't even remember is it 2012 it's over sort of 10 years yeah. yeah um and we started uh this predates me it started with just six fellows and then it quickly grew and then we hit a period where there was a, a huge investment a very welcome investment which made it grow significantly and it's in that growth that um I think there was a lot of energy and focus so that then it really became a scheme of its own right. There was a sort of necessary cohort effect and what I mean by that is as people were joining as fellows they could get together and learn together. So there's something really important about networking, building relationships, understanding other people's perspective seeing firsthand diversity, diversity of professional role, as you've said, diversity of experience and where people have come from and diversity of thinking. You know, we really, really need that in health and social care. If we're going to solve the problems that we've got ahead of us, wicked problems, we need to come up with some some new and innovative thinking. So I do think that diversity is very, very important. So we've now got um, between 40 and 50, it varies most years, fellows who come from a range of professional backgrounds in healthcare. And they come in at sort of mid-career, so partway through their training, if they're doctors and dentists, somewhere beyond ST3, unless they're GPs. Um, And it's a year for them to down tools, get away from their clinical coalface, as it were, and come and do three things. And they do a project, which is the job that they apply for. They do a paid PG cert in clinical leadership or another appropriate course if they've already studied some sort of leadership. Sometimes they have. And then they also do a suite of other additional learning that are things that we put on Having had some feedback and some understanding of what people need, so stuff around maybe how to write a really good publication or uh, presentation skills or learning how to run your own action learning set. So you have got the mechanism to think independently both during your year and beyond. So we're thinking critically about what are the skills that people need to carry with them throughout the rest of their career. For people who come from a background other than medicine, obviously the ST3 thing doesn't mean anything, but what we look for is someone who is um, usually uh, Agenda for Change Band 6 and above. It depends because in pharmacy they're kind of appointed slightly differently. So there's a range across where people have come from. But what we are looking for is people that are keen to expand their um, current circumstances and learn some leadership skills. What, what we sometimes find is people who want to come to us already have loads of clinical leadership experience and we're unable, sadly, to offer that option to everybody because there just isn't enough resource so we've had to think really carefully about where do we best place this this resource this wonderful kind of availability of um, project plus academic support plus additional courses Um, and i don't suppose there's a right answer to that but we have chosen to come down on this kind of mid-career Um, zone rather than people that are already well on in their leadership journey because as as you'll probably know there's a dearth of opportunities in terms of leadership for the vast majority of healthcare um, staff doctors it's slightly different they're going to become consultants or staff grades and there may be additional clinical leadership responsibilities associated with team or unit or whatever but um but for many people in AHP professions or nurses or midwives, that the same is not true. You know, there's lots of people that are interested in leadership, but they won't necessarily find a role. So um, we're also thinking about that. One of our previous fellows has done quite a lot of work about that and looking at barriers and how we can work to challenge those. But anyway. That's getting into the minutiae of individual projects. The theme of the, the Leadership Fellowship Scheme is it's a place where people can step away from their day-to-day challenging clinical work and down tools and really think and reflect about who they are as a leader, who do they want to be, and what are the skills they need to get to be that person. Um, and, you know, that there's, there's a heavy emphasis on... Reflection and contemplation and, and learning from each other. Mm. And that is also in a direct response to feedback and what people tell us is valuable. So far and away, the thing that people want the most is time to think what they find they do not have in a clinical role is time to think and think about solutions and think about new ideas and think about different ways of doing things and think about how they might react differently to a challenge if they weren't that proud of how they reacted before. You know, All of this kind of self-improvement stuff is really um, hard to access when you're up against it clinically. So we have thought before about a hybrid model. Should people be able to continue a clinical role or not and do as we do, step away from clinical? And I think that leadership literature is divided on this. But uh, certainly what we see is that if anyone has a residual clinical role, they are too often sucked back into it and their leadership learning isn't prioritised. So that's the model we've gone for, to prioritise time away so they can really think about how they're going to augment their skill set and move forward. And then, of course, they are... uh, directly involved in an actual leadership project, so it's not like they've vanished completely from the clinical workforce but they don't have a commitment or a responsibility to deliver uh, or do any service delivery during their year
0: I think for myself what i found, just stepping away clinically, it does feel, you know, sometimes you have that guilt sometimes that you're stepping away from your clinical roles um, and, you know, things are stretched at work for a lot of people, but looking at how things have gone already for me, for the programme, and having um, uh, spoke to some of the other fellows as well. The skills that we've learned and just a way of thinking that may have changed from actually spending time on the fellowship. Hopefully we can take this to our jobs and have a positive impact on many people around us, on the organisation, and hopefully on patients as well through uh, the, the changes that we have found in ourselves from this year so thank you very much for that opportunity and I think I can speak for many of the fellows too. So just moving on Susie um, it'd be great to hear a little bit more about your coaching journey and what coaching actually means to you.
1: I trained as a coach when I was in that kind of interim period of exploring organisational development thinking where does it all fit in and found that it was an incredibly helpful tool and When I say a helpful tool, what I mean is protecting time to think about things when you do a really busy, largely cognitive job is really important, you know, to be able to reflect on what you've done and could do and might do and want to do is really important. So, um, one of the things I did then was explore how we could have a coaching scheme within the deanery and also just think a bit about why doesn't coaching exist in healthcare generally? If we were working in any other professional discipline with this amount of responsibility, probably we'd, we would be offered it as a kind of professional tool. Um, so that's when I um, wrote a Pilot business case to set up a, a coaching scheme. So, so that happened a decade ago, in fact, and the coaching scheme has existed since then. So, one of the things I suppose you're gonna you're gonna I'm gonna be busy with is continuing that, continuing making sure that the coaching is available to all um, trainees. And the thing that I'm more involved in now than actual one-to-one coaching, although I do still do some of that, is um, teaching other people coaching skills and mentoring skills and l- finding ways to embed coaching as a sort of discipline in medical education. So passing on those skills and allowing others to grow and develop as well as offering some supervision because of course it's really important that we make coaching a safe space and we abide by ethical boundaries and we think about the the nature of the coaching role and how it fits into Um, medical education. So I'm um, I'm really keen for that all to continue and to be part of what we offer in the Yorkshire and the Humber and what we um, offer our leadership fellows whether they're from a medical background or not that they should have that availability during their leadership scheme. Um, In terms of other things I have um, I've got the good fortune of being able to offer time to teach and facilitate various workshops as you know. So I really enjoy working with fellows on some of the other skills that they that they have identified that they need. So some of that's around um, how people function in meetings, how people present. Um, how people problem solve, how they work with challenging communication and conflict, and then the one of the largest areas that keeps returning to me is this idea of imposter syndrome, and how we how we cope with ourselves. You know, how do we turn the narrative in from inside ourselves from a harsh one to a kinder, more gentle one that's more enabling. Um, and really how common that is as a phenomenon, that imposter syndrome is something that, in my experience of working with people at all sorts of stages of their career, affects pretty much everybody. I mean, there's a few people who say they've never felt it, but I think they're few and far between. My experience is more more people have it than don't have it. It's just whether they want to talk about it and whether they're comfortable. saying that it's a thing for them and of course in healthcare we're very good at pretending that everything's okay there's nothing wrong which you know as you know is a (laughs) is a shortcut to a stress full episode isn't it so um this exploration of imposter syndrome I think is really important for leaders because unless you can understand yourself and what's going on with you it's going to be really difficult for you to lead a team with any authenticity or Um, sense of compassion. So it's really important to be able to speak compassionately to yourself and then be able to offer compassion to others and still lead, move forward, get the job done. Um, So I'm really interested in that work because I think it speaks to how we can help people be their best selves at work and how they can come to work
0: feeling okay and valued. With myself during surgical training I think I've probably lost count of the amount of times that people have said that they've um, kind of cheated their way to their jobs and they don't really feel like, you know, they should be there. And I think it is something a lot of us have felt at some point for something. And uh, that art of self-compassion as well, and just realizing your self-worth as well is something I think a lot of us struggle with. It's something I've struggled with myself as well. And it just, you know, the methods that we have learned from you, to actually cope with this have been in, in, invaluable for us and I think I have to say a lot of the fellows who have spent time with you feel like it's always a bit of a coaching session when you speak with Susie as well and <laughs> it's something that is always does have a positive impact on us and I think the biggest selling point of the Future's Leaders programme is yourself really and I think I can speak for a lot of people to actually say that as well just with yourself really and I'm sure you get a feel of the impact you have had uh, w- with the Future Leaders Programme do, do you see yourself as being a success?
1: Oh wow well, what a question, blind me, well I'm already blushing at <laughs> <laughs> what you just said about impact, I mean I to be fair lots of people are involved in the in the leadership program aren't You're being they? Too <laughs> <laughs> well it's not just me, it's, it's the take-home point there, I mean well, now might be a good time to th- to talk about what is success. What does it even mean? Um, should we go there? Should we talk about that?
0: I will still ask you whether you see yourself as a success okay. at the end of
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe if I explain to you what success means to me, then it will be it will be clear. I mean, I think so. In thinking about that, for the in preparation of this, I, I it's such a loaded word, isn't it? Success. So even the question what does success mean, or are you successful, um, is interesting, because who says, like, where does where does it come from? Is it externally defined? Um, is there some form of kind of getting to a goal or reaching validation? Or is it internally de- defined? And then, of course, we've also got the concept of privilege. And... W- What have you been gifted during your life that's made it easier or harder for you? And I mean, I've got no doubt that I have had privilege in my life that's helped me. You know, I've been lucky to receive a a sound education, for instance, and have educational opportunities available to me, new ones, along the course of my life. But I mean, for me, um, success is really about being able to live in alignment with your values and have a life that feels meaningful and rewarding it's also personally about choice and autonomy that to be able to it feels a luxury to be in a position professionally to be able to choose a lot of what my activity is and I you know that I really enjoy that that's a part of you know what what I like in my week is that no week is like the last week and they're never boring and there's lots of opportunity to work with people and there's another part of it the success piece which is about being available to work with others and being able to see other people um grow and develop is incredibly rewarding i just find that really satisfying and so yeah i mean i do feel successful because i get to do that every day so that is a real privilege and really really enjoyable and i think an, another another feature i suppose of my professional life now which feels successful is being able to work with great colleagues so having other people around you who are and i count my associate dean colleagues in this um, as well as the fellows. People who are thoughtful, generous, supportive, clever and come up with great ideas, have good initiatives, you know, that that makes for a really rewarding life because you're in the thick of it, you know, you're doing stuff that's, um, that feels worthwhile. And I think reward, uh, reward as a theme, but reward meaning... Thi- are things meaningful? Do they, do they create um, meaning and satisfaction for others? And will they have impact? Um, th- that feels success, like success to me. So I feel very fortunate to be involved with the Future Leaders Program because, without de- I mean that without fail, this is a cohort of enthusiastic, wonderful young professionals who want to make a difference. And that feels great to be connected with, the, with that group of people. And then seeing that group of people create impact, make change, make positive change uh, it is just it, it is great. So that that's a cluster of reasons why I do feel successful. Yeah, because I, I get those wonderful features in
0: my life. I think I fully agree with you, really. <laughs> and, you know, setting those foundations for everybody else to think forward and you know, think actively in ways to improve things, whether we're successful or not in doing that, but empowering us to make positive changes or try to make positive changes, how can that not be seen as a success? So again, thank you for that. We briefly touched on barriers in regards to setting up the FLP, but just with yourself really, has there been any barriers or challenges in your life that you've had to overcome that have had mm-hmm. a lasting impact on you?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose, well, there's two things that spring to mind. One is that imposter feeling. I mean, it's not a perk of the job that I don't get to feel it. (laughs) So even us just talking about success now and me saying, I feel successful. There's an imposter voice in my head saying, really? You think you're successful? Okay. So what gives you the right? So I I guess that's something that I know I know how to work with that now. I mean I see that as a sort of function of a human brain rather than a sort of um, necessarily a problem. But it but it isn't easy and it does take some work. Um, and then the other thing is being an introvert. So I'm I, you know I'm someone who it, I I did Myers Briggs oh many years ago early on in my public health training and it was a real light bulb moment for me and I know people have different feelings about Myers-Briggs or psychometric tests in general and and I and I share that sort of you know caution around them and um, what is the true value of them but my experience both personally and professionally working with other people as well as myself is that they can shed light and and create a feeling of validation And that's certainly what happened to me so prior to that i think i probably felt like a square peg in a round hole um i mean i'm sure other people who have an introverted preference will get this that you know the world is largely set up for extroverts so it's hard to be that if you're not that and i felt different in a kind of nebulous i can't put my finger on it kind of a way like there was something wrong with me. So finding out about introversion was very helpful. I think now I would probably point people towards Susan Kane's work, her TED talk, or her book, Quiet, which explores this in great depth. And that's been really, really helpful in sort of leveling the playing, playing field um, between extroversion and introversion as, as pre- preferences. Obviously, you know, one isn't better than the other, but um, they are both present and important features of, of people. So I think it's about valuing both and creating workspaces or lives where both can be honored and valued for the richness that they bring rather than one group feel like they don't quite fit in. So I think me discovering, oh, it's okay to be me, was, um, was really helpful. And uh, I mean, it sounds obvious, doesn't it, that that's, that's where we should all an- end up, that it's okay to be us. But I think a lot of us don't feel that in our life's journey. And that is, of course, what we touch on in leadership, because unless you feel safe, competent, okay, as you are, you're not probably going to lead other people. You know, some of that discomfort um, is going to rub off on others and they're going to feel a little bit um, awkward or sense the inauthenticity. So, yeah, I think. Being an introvert probably was a barrier. It's no longer a barrier. Now I think there's a lot more conversation, dialogue around introverted leadership, quiet power, those kind of concepts, which is helpful and it, and it creates validity to people who have um, an introverted preference and are interested in the whole kind of world of, of leadership.
0: I think I can share your views, uh, Susie, even as an extrovert this year, it's really given me an opportunity to work with people who are introverts, but excellent leaders, and I've learned so much from them, and going forward, these are skill sets that I can take forward in situations where I will have more of an appreciation of different leadership styles and different personalities and what they can actually bring in different situations. Just to finish, really, one thing we do actually like to ask our guests is, is there any advice you would give to a younger Susie Sterling, maybe in her <laughs> teens? Um, lots of advice, I think,
1: yeah. Um, I mean, the main thing is about being me, not being somebody who isn't me, which I think when you're growing up is a really hard message, isn't it? You. you you know and I think it's even harder now in terms of messaging and what people are immersed in socially and culturally um, but I I think it took me a long time and perhaps this is connected to being an introvert I don't know being shy um, a long time to realize that it was okay to be the version of me that showed up in the world and not try and be something I wasn't um, that, yeah that's mainly I suppose yeah that's the thing that I would most want to pass on I think I think there's all sorts of other things like you know this too shall pass and also have confidence and you know n- know that it'll be alright those kind of things latent doubts that probably everybody has as they're growing up it's really hard to imagine yourself in your own future isn't it but when you go back to that person if I go back to myself in my youth she was probably not that not that sure of how things would unfold so I would want to reassure and
0: instill confidence I suppose (laughs) for anybody who's actually met you we're quite happy that things have worked out how they have (laughs) and if you had gone back and changed things maybe we wouldn't be here doing the future leaders program so I think you're probably one of the few examples i would say it's probably good that it's worked out hard, how, how it has but well that's very good work as, thank you <laughs> no thank you so much for spending a bit of time it's to a speak to Susie thank you everyone for joining me today and I hope you've enjoyed the episode I'll be back next week with Dr Chris Turner from Civility Saves Lives we'll be discussing the importance of civility in the workplace and the effects that this has on both patient outcomes and staff morale I look forward to you tuning in then